So, Wright Thompson, the date May 19th, 2022, the 85th day of war in Ukraine, why was that in particular significant for you? That's the first time I ever sat down with Oleksandr Petrikov, who is the head coach of the Ukrainian national team. And we were in this beautiful hotel in Slovenia. He kind of looked around at the chirping birds and the trees and the big tall skies and was just ashamed and disgusted that they were in this luxurious place preparing to play soccer games while his countrymen were in foxholes and trenches. He had a reputation that preceded him. He famously once uh, handled an eight-question press conference in 37 words. <laughs> and so I was a little, you know, a little nervous. First, I was like, let's just get this guy talking. And then, I mean, he was like a warrior poet. When this is over and the war is over and Kiev is... is its old, vibrant self again, what do you most look forward to doing? I don't even know what to say. I'd walk around Kiev for a couple of hours. I'd visit churches. Our city is very beautiful. I love Kiev very much. For me, it is the best city in the world. They are in an existential fight for their survival. Leading this team onto the field is the closest he can get to helping protect his country. He and his players viewed putting on that jersey and going onto the field as an act of service. When your fellow countrymen see you and your team take the field, what do you think they see? Pride. I don't think a coach or a team has ever been asked to do something more difficult, which uh, makes it poignant to be around them, emotional at times, and also just really, really interesting to sort of see what the human animal is capable of. I don't think I'll ever be around something like this again. Ukraine, a country under threat. Never before has there been a one-off, winner-takes-all showdown that's had the worldwide profile attached to this one. As much as any individual person I can think of, the year in sports has been shaped, disfigured, really, by Vladimir Putin. Just yesterday, we learned that the Russian dictator had swapped prisoners with President Joe Biden, ending WNBA star Brittany Griner's 293 days of wrongful detainment in exchange for the arms dealer, Victor Boot, a story our show will absolutely return to soon. But today... After months of reporting inside Ukraine and across the world, we wanted to bring you inside the war Putin has been waging 
as experienced by the team most directly impacted by Putin's regime and their coach, whose job is to do something that no one has ever done before. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, December 9th. This is ESPN Daily. So, right, you have been on this story for us for a long time now. And this story, just to be very blunt about this, is as big and as important as any we have ever told on this show. You've been traveling through active war zones and back again. You were actually on with us in June when Ukraine was trying to qualify for the World Cup. But the reason you're here with us again is because you've finished your reporting. You have this E60 film premiering on Sunday called Remember the Blue and Yellow. And the guy at the center of it is the head coach of the Ukrainian national team, this guy named Alexander Petrikov. So how do you want to properly introduce him here? Who was he before he took this job? He was the main youth coach of the Ukrainian sort of soccer program. He won the under-20 World Cup. A lot of the players who were the big stars in the professional league now came up under him. And last year, he ended up getting this job because the current head coach got into a sort of a contract game of chicken and the the head of the football federation was like, well, we'll just hire this other guy. And so he had never been famous. He was just a, he was one of those coaches that everyone in the soccer community knew, but the public didn't really know. And he gets this job. I knew the better half of the team. I had coached junior and youth teams for 11 years. I knew all those guys, so I accepted it. Then I got home and sat down. It was night. I sat down thinking, what have I done? The burden of responsibility fell heavily on my shoulders. He immediately does something really, really political, which is he switches the language of the Ukrainian team from Russian to Ukrainian. He was the first coach to ever speak Ukrainian in public. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Mm. You know, there's centuries of Russification. Most of these guys came from the Soviet sports tradition. And so, like, all of the sports schools were, you know, in Russian. And uh, Ukrainian was seen as sort of lower class, you know, like a real thick country accent if you spoke Ukrainian. Mm. And the urban elite spoke Russian. And so he started speaking Ukrainian. And then the team did. Are you going to film and subtitle the whole time? If so, I'd rather speak only Ukrainian. Ukrainians in the U.S. will also watch this. Because Ukrainians in the U.S. will be watching. I should speak Ukrainian. Ukrainian is not his first language by a long shot. And his vocabulary is much smaller. I mean, it's interesting. Like, a couple times when he was really mad and we weren't on camera, he would ask me if it was okay if he switched to Russian. <laughs> because there was a point he wanted to make that he just literally didn't have the Ukrainian vocabulary to make. I mean, there, there were, you know, there were concepts that he just could not articulate. And, I mean, that's really frustrating. But he, it's important for him to do that because 
if you go into the cities in the in the main squares in Kiev, they have sandbags all over their big statues because they think the Russians will target them because they're you know trying to erase Ukrainian history. And the speaking of the language is in its own way a, a kind of metaphysical sandbag. That political aspect to him, his identity, was that always something that was running through him even as a little kid? Like, when you go back to his childhood yeah. and the way that he was growing up, what was that like? You know, he grew up the son of a alcoholic factory worker in the Soviet machine. He was a hard-nosed defender who loved to play soccer. You know, he had an older brother who knew the, the local guy to get you Beatles records or Levi's jeans. <laughs> he you know, was a typical Soviet child. And he started playing professionally and his playing career ended and his coaching career began in 1991, which is the year the Soviet Union collapsed and the year of Ukrainian identity. And so, you know, his coaching career is the exact same age as his country. And so that year, 1991, when the Soviet Union is falling apart and former states like Ukraine are rising up, declaring independence, what does he remember about that specific day? He remembers the euphoria. Crowds below cheering as the blue and yellow banner of independent Ukraine was hoisted. Where were you when Ukraine declared independence? Do you remember that day? Um, yes, I have. Kiev. Yes, I do. In Kiev. It was so euphoric at first, and then it all collapsed. There was nothing in the shops. It was a new country. A new currency was introduced. No one knew what to do. He also remembers the uncertainty and the fear. You know, they had new money that wasn't worth anything. All of the stores were empty. The shops were empty. But he also remembers sitting around with other people who loved football and talking about the, the future of their game, talking about the future of soccer in Ukraine. It was this great moment of rebirth. You imagine that everybody was presented with this blank slate and like, what are you going to do with it? And in that sense, he and other people his age are founding fathers of this country. In the beginning, when he would hear the Ukrainian national anthem, it didn't spark any emotion in him because it was just the strange song of this new country. And now he said when he hears it, he like wants to run through walls and he fights back tears. And so, you know, in his life, you can see the larger arc of patriotism and a rising Ukrainian identity that is shared by millions of people. He is one citizen, and there's a lot to learn about his brothers and sisters from his journey. Amazing scenes, truly amazing. And that journey, I mean, he, he lives basically the first half of his life under the Soviet Union. He lives the second half in the newly independent nation of Ukraine. And the result is that his personal identity changes. He comes to think of himself as truly Ukrainian. And so last year, 2021, before war breaks out, he winds up getting this job that in theory, any proud Ukrainian soccer coach would dream of having. 
right? It, he's the head coach of the national team, right? As they're about to try to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar. So how does the early stage of qualifying go at that time for his team? It goes great. I mean, whatever he was doing was working. I mean, I think they won seven... They went undefeated in seven or eight matches. Uh, they beat Bosnia, which was a really big win. By the end of 2021, they had put themselves in a position of being in a playoff for a World Cup spot. And they were going to need to go beat Scotland in Scotland and then Wales in Wales in a span of, I think, five days. The only time they had ever made the World Cup was 2006. I mean, th this was a hard job in the best of times. Good morning, Eva. This morning, as Russia continues to pour land, sea, and air forces into this region, new satellite imagery analyzed by independent researchers seems to show some Russian forces are on the move, taking forward positions closer to the Ukrainian border. By January, there were tanks and Russian divisions on the border. The Biden administration was just warning them over and over again. Well, the White House says the situation between Russia and Ukraine is extremely dangerous and that Russia could at any point launch an attack. If you talk to Petrikov, he was in Turkey for like a coaching seminar or something with football in February, just before the war. He was there. He came back to Kiev on February 20th. He said the Russian coaches were telling him there's an invasion coming and he still didn't believe it. He was just like, he just couldn't process the fact mm. that, you know, these people that he considered brothers would come try to kill them. That relationship, the geopolitical shared history, which we've been circling here on this show already, but just the depths of it, right? How do you measure it properly? The idea that, look, this this ends in war ongoing, as we know in the present, but when you trace it all the way back, how far does it go? I mean, it goes back at least to 1240 A.D. There was a uh, kingdom that arose. It was based in Kiev. It was called the Kievan Rus, and it ran essentially from the Black Sea to Scandinavia. And then... About 1240, Genghis Khan's grandson came rolling through there with his armies and just wrecked the empire and sent people scattering. And some people became Belarusians, some people became Russians, and some people became Ukrainians. And it has been an article of faith for Russian rulers, you know, from Peter II to Catherine the Great, to Vladimir Putin that there is no such thing as Ukraine and no such thing as a Ukrainian and no such thing as Ukrainian culture. Putin writes in these just unhinged essays that he publishes that even the idea of Ukraine is an invention of Western elites and security services, that the CIA hmm. is doing this. Except that, you know, Ukrainians will point out that this great empire started in Kiev, not in Moscow. So if Russia doesn't control Kiev, then they cannot have this history they want. So th this is a, it is a vital thing to erase the Ukrainians. 
I mean, Petrikov, it sounds like, had a particular view of this himself when you discussed this part of their history with him. He was bragging about how the Russians came from them, not the other way around. Like, you and I might talk about our favorite football team. It wasn't, he wasn't talking about the past. He was talking about something that happened a long time ago, but he wasn't talking, it wasn't dusty, and it wasn't abstract or an idea from a book. It was like a story he'd been told around a campfire that was being kept alive and nurtured. I mean, that's really, that's how it felt. I imagine the particular role that you play as a as an athlete on a national team on the Ukrainian national soccer team in specific as war is about to break out is a is an especially surreal one. So in February of 2022 when all of this is is officially looking palpable when it's officially feeling palpable what did they recall about those days? None of them believed it would ever actually happen. They had plenty of warning and still were stunned. Some part of them lived in the mythic world they had created that was civilized because they had high-speed internet and McDonald's and just couldn't believe that something like this could happen until it did. It was unprovoked. But this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine. As the sun came up this morning, a missile striking an industrial park in western Ukraine. A helicopter assault on an airport outside of Kiev. Close, intense fighting. The most chilling piece of video in the film, it was a home movie taken by the, a neighbor of the president of the football federation a Russian jet, sort of on a bombing run, let go of a missile that hits nearby. And you hear a child scream. And it's that scream, like that's the noise. That's the thing you'll have nightmares about in 30 years. You know, when you wake up in your bed in a cold sweat. The backup goalkeeper, uh, his first child, a boy, was born uh, at 10 o'clock at night, six hours before the invasion started. They were like 80 miles from the front line, and he has to drive this kid home, and then for the first couple of months of the kid's life, be awakened night after night by air raid sirens so that you have to come up with a plan with your wife in which she bundles the child, and you get the pre-packed diaper bag and food and water and formula and milk and all of that, and then go down into a freezing cold basement to wait out the air raid. We were running back and forth with the baby for the first month. It was winter, and we had to put on two jumpsuits first to keep him warm, a hat, and so on, all the time. The child's freezing. You know, he's in three layers and a snowsuit and two blankets. And you just do this night after night after night. I forgot about everything at that moment. And then all my thoughts were on how to protect him. 
I'm curious when it set in for Petrikov, the leader of this team. When did this become real to him? On the morning of the war, his daughter came over, his son called and said, we need to leave. And he said, I'm not leaving. He, you know, went and tried to join the army and they, they didn't want him. They laughed kindly and told him, you know, we don't need a 65-year-old soldier, but what you can do is go win. And a couple of days into the war, uh, he was walking to the store to go buy bread, and his wife told him, we don't need bread, but he went to get bread anyway. And he heard this whoosh, whoosh above his head. And he looked up, and it was the missile that hit their TV tower and killed a family, mother, father, uh, two kids. I think that's when it became real. And he was just like, oh, shit, you know, this, like, this is not a joke. Well, the, what, what do you do at that point, though? I mean, you, it's early enough in the timeline where there is a choice to be made, right? Where do you go? How do you hide, seek refuge, fight? He said, I asked him, I'm like, why, you know, what are you doing? And he said, I was born and raised here, and this is my home, and I'm not letting someone run me out of my home. And it was as simple as that. The decisions you make under fire reveal who you actually are. This war has revealed something essential about lots of people. I talked to a a soldier. Uh, He was uh, wounded when he was 20 in Afghanistan fighting for the Soviet army. And then he was wounded like 30 years later fighting in the Ukrainian army against the Russians. And when he was in the hospital, two players from the national team came to visit him. One was this guy named Philip, and I can't think of his last name, and the other guy was Taras Stepanenko. And that soldier talked to me about how the nation is proud of Taras Stepanenko. He is a fighter. He plays for the national team. He plays with heart, and he plays in a way that makes his countrymen recognize the best of themselves. The other guy was playing professionally in Russia and didn't quit, and he stayed to keep his money. And that guy is dead to this soldier. What you're saying also reminds me of of Petrikov, right? I mean, it's 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 this notion of what is Vladimir Putin to him. What would he say to Putin if he were if he were here and he could address the man responsible for the nightmare that has plunged his country into into hell? I asked him that. What would you say to Vladimir Putin if he were sitting here? I won't speak ill of the dead. That country is already dead to me and all our guys. You know, I lived in the USSR. We had a great country. I have never thought that something like that could happen. We were like brothers. I had so many friends there in Moscow. 
How dare you? I don't know how to explain it. They lost their minds. They are not human after what they did in Ukraine. I saw it with my own eyes. Lots of people perished. Nothing is left. You should see this. Only then will you realize what they did. After the break, how to prepare for the game of your life. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, right, you actually traveled to Ukraine multiple times for the story. You went to Kyiv. And it is not normal that sports reporting would take someone into a war zone this intimately. So, if you could, just take us there with you. Tell us what you saw. The first thing I noticed is, you know, we're staying in a very nice hotel. But then you go out from the hotel into the main square, and they're just burned-out wrecks of tanks. Right, these destroyed tanks that were dragged over from the front lines and are now these trophies of war. I'm sitting there with the coach's daughter. All right, so where are we standing right now? We are at Sofivska Square right now. The center of the center of Kyiv. And, uh, and uh, now you can see the um, what left after Russians. These are Russian tanks that have been destroyed, and clearly all of the troopers and tankers in them died a horrible, fiery death. It was just burned white on the inside, and the outside was all wrecked. And they're all lined up on the main square. And then you have families like walking through them, like inspecting them. You know, kids are playing on them. You know, there was a kid with like a lightsaber fighting another kid near there. And they're burned out pieces of uniform. And and like, you know, there was an onion that somehow was like the only thing that survived the fire. And, you know, I was just like, you know, thinking about the senselessness of war and what a terrible way to die this would have been. And I asked the coach's daughter, I'm like, what do you think when you see this? When you look at that tank, what what, what does it make you think? Uh, When I look at this fire tank, I'm happy because I understand that uh, Russian soldiers are dead in these tanks. I'm happy for my army. And I'm like, well, that's real. Man. You know, that's, this is what we're talking about. Yes. This is what you get when you invade someone's country. They hate you and want to kill you and are happy when you die. 
You need to understand that uh, right now uh, Ukrainians are not the same like three months ago. We're totally different persons, everybody, everybody, yes? Yeah. Like uh, before that, we was uh, not just thinking about the Russians. Yes, just live your own life. Yeah. We are, don't care what's going on in your country. Live your own life. Leave us. Now I ju we just hate them. We were in uh, Lviv one day. And uh, it was uh, Mac uh, Woodruff, who's one of the uh, DPs on the film. And he and I just walked over to the main square. And they were going to go sit at one of those outdoor cafes and get a cold beer and, uh, and just hang out. And we're just about to sort of sit down, and then the air raid sirens start going off. And then all these announcements are being made in Ukrainian. And he and I are looking at each other like, well, that, that doesn't sound good. And there are all these groups who are getting up from tables and coming out of shops and they're all moving. And I'm like, well, I think we should really follow this group of people. And so we, we followed them into a coffee shop and we went down into what looked like an old World War II bomb shelter and we stayed down there for, I don't know, like a half hour, 45 minutes. And then there was the all clear sounded and then everyone was very, very calm and everybody just went back above ground and then just immediately resumed whatever it was they'd been doing. And it is just a group of people who are getting on with it, you know? I mean, I think we talked last time. I've always wondered what London was like during the Blitz. And now I think I have a tiny idea mm -hmm. that they just get on with it. And this is the pretext for these World Cup qualifying games that this team is about to play. I mean, this is this is this is the trauma, this is the anger that is leading us to the first playoff game for this team in late March now, which happens to be yeah, just a month after the beginning of the invasion. Did the team even think they could play that match? No, I mean that they you know, they had sort of stopped being a team. I mean, a lot of them talked about it was the first time in their lives since they were boys they didn't think about football. You know, Petrikov said he really couldn't watch matches. You know, they, they needed the matches to be postponed. Officials in either UEFA or FIFA sort of tried to float the idea that they should just get an automatic berth to the World Cup. But uh, Petrikov and his boss refused that. They said, we won't, we're earning it or we don't want it. And Petrikov started calling the players and they were like, what are you talking about? I mean, this, there's a war going on. And so it, his first real task was to, one, just know where everybody was. And two, to know what everybody's family situation was and who was safe and who still needed help. And then to try to put the team back together. And once uh, FIFA announced that the games had been rescheduled uh, for June, they could all sort of start thinking about being a team again. The president called me to say they were going to reschedule. He offered me to gather the team. No way. I was afraid the Russian bastards would find out that the national team gathered in the training camp. They could carry out a missile strike. Everyone would have died. I said, no, only abroad. No, only abroad. Let's pack our bags. They met in Slovenia to start training camp. All pro teams, you know, have those monitors they put on players on practice. 
because they're tracking all of their like metabolic data and everything you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Accelerometers, all of that stuff. Yeah, they were just stunned when they got the data back from the first practice. It just how out of shape people had gotten so quickly during the war. They're like, what returned to him was not a professional soccer team. Mm. And uh, so they had a lot of work to do just to be able to take the field. Which does feel like it should have been completely unsurprising, right? Because even beyond their bodies, how much were these players' brains consumed by the war, by the safety of their families back home? You know, these guys are talking to their families regularly. They're, you know, every morning they wake up and the first thing they do is get their phones out. It was interesting in which the game also became a refuge because that was the only time of the day when they didn't have their phones the only time of the day free from news where they could lose themselves in something. You know, we certainly make a lot of uh, what they gave to the country, but I mean, as much can be made of what they gave to each other. You know, they gave each other comfort. They gave each other support. Uh, You know, in one instance, uh, one of the players, uh, his wife's family was trapped behind enemy lines in an occupied city. And he didn't know what to do. And so he called Yarmolenko, who's the team captain, plays in the Premier League, or did play in the Premier League, uh, and is a very famous, wealthy man who called people in the military and had the Ukrainian army go under cover of darkness and get his teammates' family into a rowboat, take them across the river, back to Ukrainian lines. They were there for each other in a way that none of them will ever forget. You know, we talk all the time in sports about what it means to be a player's coach, what it means to keep the locker room together. And those are essentially cliches by and large. But what did keeping this locker room together actually look like in this context? When he looks at that team, he sees a map of scattered families. He knows where everybody is. He knows whose parents are safe and whose aren't. He knows what everybody's going through. When you got here and you had your team reassembled, what's the best way to deal with the elephant in the room? The fact that the country's at war. I talked to each player and asked them how their parents were doing and where they moved. The guys told me about that. In turn, I explained to them how necessary it is to keep training. People are dying. They are our fans. Guys are dying in trenches. Our cause is to play football. We need to qualify for the world championship and get to the final. That's our cause in this war. I mean, what was so interesting talking to Petrikov was, you know, before those matches, I was very much in the mode of results. And he was very much in the mode of, we're just trying to to get out there. And so they trained for six weeks in Slovenia. They traveled to Scotland, to Glasgow, to be exact, for the first playoff game. And this is the part of the story now where we covered this in in great detail, right? When we had you on the show back in June, right after all of this happened. And so just to speed through it a bit here, what does that whole montage sound like? They won against Scotland and the sound the stadium made on that video is unbelievable. 
Mbappe. A third goal here. Dorfik scores. 3-1. Game, set and match for Ukraine, who lift the hearts of a devastated nation. This has been some performance by a team who haven't played for six months. It's been incredible. Words don't do it justice. And then they went and played in a driving Welsh rain, and they lost. And they lost one to nil on an own goal by Yarmolenko. Just a difficult moment here for Yarmolenko because he's defending. He's trying to get that last-minute defensive header from away from his goal, but it ends up going back across the goal into the back of the net. And the look on his face. It's just the thousandth reminder that we almost shouldn't be able to watch sports. It's such an intimate thing that is happening in public. Yeah. It, it felt it felt also like a movie that we should have cut away from. Like at that moment, it was that uncomfortable. Wales are back at the World Cup after 64 years. And amidst their euphoria, spare a thought for Ukraine. Amidst their nightmare, the end of this football fairy tale. It was off. I mean, I was there. Yeah. I was there, and it was awful. So much to admire in the extraordinary defiance of a proud nation. Coach came in and faced the music, and uh, as he was leaving the press conference, he turned back and said, essentially, please don't forget us. Like, don't let this team losing this game somehow diminish the amount that you're thinking and talking about Ukraine as a whole. Like, he felt like he had failed to do the thing that those soldiers asked him to do on the day that he tried to join the army. Petrikov went back to the hotel in Wales and stared out his window all night at the Cardiff docks where there was a Ferris wheel. I remember the hotel in Wales. There was this Ferris wheel overlooking the bay. I spent the whole night looking in that direction. And it just turned in circles all night long and he stared at it. And I thought, what happens if I, the head coach of the national team, lose heart and give up? And he noticed that in Wales, uh, Yarmolenko didn't come to dinner. And then the team flew to Dublin, and Yarmolenko didn't come to lunch. And then he didn't come to dinner. And the next morning, coach went and knocked on his door and was like, you have to wake up. It's over. Like, we have to start again. And to me, that's actually when the story of the team starts. Mm. They lost the biggest game that any of them will ever play in, and then they had to keep playing. Coming up, a new story, in a sense, begins.
Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So the Ukrainian national team, right, loses to Wales, and it is now official. They are not going to be in the World Cup. And, you know, as reporters, as storytellers, this means that we're not going to get the payoff. The convenient narrative miracle that all of us were admittedly rooting for. And so in the days and weeks after that, what does this team decide to do? What they did next, to me, is the moment that revealed their character. And the way that re- war reveals everything, what they did next reveals their character more than how they played in those two games because they stood back up and they didn't go through the motions. And they practiced as hard for a meaningless game as they did for those huge global games. And... They let that be their epitaph. They had to go keep playing. I mean, that's the whole thing is, you know, what do you do? You have to stand up. It's very hard. It's more complicated, and I understand that. There was a dream, and it remained a dream. Everyone has something else in his head. I said to them, guys, wake up. Life goes on. Everything is in front of you. The ball, the football field. Go out, play, win. So, right, you had just called this a moment ago, a set of meaningless games. But what are we actually talking about here exactly? It was some bullshit tournament, like the UEFA League of Nations or Nations League or something. I mean, it was, you know, it was just... For them, as Yarmolenko said, it was a chance. Man, you give them a kickoff time and a location, and they're going to be there. And they're going to put those jerseys on, and they're going to go out and do the only thing they have left to do to help their country. They'll take on all comers. You name the time and the place. And people were naming times and places, and they were showing up. (laughs) They had to go to Dublin, and they had to go to Armenia. They had to go to Poland a couple of times. I mean, they, they had to keep playing matches. And we went back out to answer that huge question. What do you do when you lose the most important game of your life? And so the story that you ended up 
discovering as they play these three matches in June and three matches in September. The the moments, the, the, the stories in this new chapter, what sticks out to you now? That they played until the end. And they played every game like it was the most important game they would ever play. And that their definition of why you play the game was fundamentally different than mine and for reasons that I'm still not fully sure that I understand, but that there was something intense and, for lack of a better word, deeply patriotic going on every time they put those jerseys on. We were in a stadium, and I rode there early to watch the the locker room guys set up the locker room for the team to arrive. And there are these three guys, and there's Boris and there are two Alexes. Started playing this Ukrainian folk music, like old-timey pop music, and it was really loud. And they started hanging jerseys and lockers and folding shorts and gently rubbing their hands on the creases to straighten them out. And Boris was followed behind the two Alexes and redoing them if he didn't think they looked neat enough. And it was sacred. This was the thing they could do. The three locker room guys, totally anonymous, underneath the stadium in an empty room, and they do this match after match because they want those jerseys to hang perfect in those lockers because this is the thing they could do. The, the combination of the music and just the gentle care of these guys, I teared up in the locker room. Uh, you know, it was much closer to like laying out vestments than it was you know, a uniform. And it was just one of the most emotional things I'd ever seen because it sort of was the Rosetta Stone that unlocked it all. Because I was like, okay, I, I get it now. Why were they playing these games? Because someone had offered them the chance to do something for their country, which was under just daily assault. Maybe my favorite few hours with them were after they beat Armenia and we all went to the airport and went through duty-free and guys were getting bottles of whiskey and we got on the airplane and they're singing old Italian love songs and you can hear bottles clinking and the shuffle of cards and there are three or four different poker games going and there was no Wi-Fi on the plane so nobody could get any news from home and everyone's laughing and... You just felt like they got to be a normal soccer team for a few hours, and they just got a little taste of their old lives back, and it was just joyous. I like to think about the idea of them as old men sitting in a cafe in Kiev, remembering. Like, that brings me joy to think about that in the future because, you know, they weren't the winningest team. They weren't the most famous team or the most successful team, but... They're the closest team that ever existed. And so, just at the end here, right? I'm curious, your last visit with Petrikov in this series of, of visits that you made with him overseas, what do you remember about it? We left Poland after their last match, which was just a devastating draw in the driving rain. And we rode an all-night train back to Kiev. And I went and visited with him for a little bit in his car, and he was sitting on the bed. He was watching uh, a replay of the match on his computer and was uh, reading about himself on the Internet, which you never want to do. 
And he told me there's a poll on the internet about whether I should keep my job. And we're just riding through the darkness. You know, they, they dim the lights in the train and put up blackout windows when we cross the border. We get to Kiev, and then two days later, he meets us at a cafe. It was like, you know, like Indian summer day, you know, like it was like it had started to get cold. And then there was a warm day kind of out of nowhere. And we're sitting outside and the sun was warm on our arms. And he raised a glass and just said, uh, I don't understand why people fight wars and want to kill each other. But, you know, today we are healthy and alive. And if I ever see you again, we will hug like brothers. Let us drink to that. And it was just, you know. What do you do when you're surrounded by death? You live. Right, Thompson, thank you for raising a glass on ESPN Daily. It was great, man. You can watch Remember the Blue and Yellow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern on Sunday on ESPN and then streaming afterwards on ESPN+. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andre Soto, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Tyrus Ray, Russell Donalo, Eve Tro, Samantha Surface, Courtney Smith, and Jackson Agelo. I'll talk to you Monday.